0: Have you ever been reading through the Bible and come across a passage that you didn't understand, a really tough text that caused you to say something like, "Nah, uh <laughs> that can't be right? The passage before us today is such a text for me, and not just me. In fact, I have a book in my library entitled Difficult Passages in the Gospels, Among other things, the author seeks to reconcile uh, some of the difficulties in harmonizing that is fitting together the the four gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It also has a section which deals with some very difficult passages or verses um, in the gospels. Our text today in Mark 7 is in that book, another book, entitled The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Mark 7 is in that book, too. This is a very challenging text. Read it with me. I think you'll see what I mean. Mark chapter 7, beginning reading in verse 24, says this. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter... This is a little girl... Little daughter had an unclean spirit, immediately came and fell at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him and kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, this is Jesus, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Are you kidding me? But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Does that cause a problem for anyone besides me? I mean, at first glance, it seems like this woman got the best of Jesus, like she kind of outsmarted him, out-debated him, backed him into a corner and forced him to do something (laughs) that he didn't really want to do. And what's with not wanting to do that little girl? I mean, there are several things here that bother me about Jesus. First, he he seems to ignore this lady. Matthew's account says he didn't even answer her. Then when he does say something, he, he, he says, sorry, didn't come for you. I only came for the Jews. Kind of a Jews are us attitude. He, he didn't even want these dirty rotten Gentiles to know that he was there. He's hiding out in the house. Then thirdly, he calls her a name. I mean, right? He calls her a dog. As much as you might like little Fluffy, calling someone a dog is not a good thing. This does not seem very nice to me. It it kind of bugs me. This is is inconsistent with the Jesus I know, or at least the one I thought I knew. I mean, why is Jesus being so mean here? Well, one critic of the Bible calls this an, quote, um, atrocious saying, expressing incredible insolence and based on, quote, "the, the worst kind of chauvinism. That's good. In fact, one commentary I have quotes another so called scholar who, who wrote an essay giving a scathing critique of Jesus' response to this woman. And the, the, the essay says things like this His insensitivity and harshness were so severe on this occasion, he so demeaned this woman in typical chauvinistic fashion, he so transgressed all boundaries of courtesy that he crossed the line into slander. This text, the author actually charges, is exhibit A, that Jesus was not sinless because he wronged this innocent woman by calling her a dog. Whoa! I mean, if that's true, not only is this passage a bit troubling, it destroys the Christian faith. Because if Jesus was not sinless, if indeed he committed a sin in dealing with this woman, he could have atoned for his own sin, let alone ours. If, if Jesus sinned against her, we're in, we're in big trouble. We might as well go home. We're wasting our time. We've got to deal with this very troubling text. So, from my perspective... That, that Jesus wronged this woman is unacceptable. So, so then w- w- what do we have? I believe we need to pull back the covers just a little bit. I, I believe that Jesus never did anything that was not motivated by love, meaning that I'm suggesting that this was a loving thing to do. I also happen to believe that Jesus was teaching, like all the time. And, and typically he was... He was Uh, calling out or strengthening faith on this particular day we're going to find that the crowds were gone it was only Jesus, the disciples and this woman I believe he was calling out and strengthening her faith I believe that he was teaching the disciples something about the nature and the extent of, of faith and I believe that he's teaching us this morning he's teaching us Gentiles about great faith I think you'll be encouraged. You see, the Bible has much to say about faith. The walk of the Christian life is both begun and sustained uh, through faith. I mean, think about it. We can have all of the rational explanations for believing the gospel, you know, believing in Jesus. We can read all of the books that give a defense of the faith, which I happen to have in my library. But at the end of the day, following Jesus requires faith. Yes, it's rational. Yes, it makes sense. Yes, the evidence is frankly overwhelming. But all of that is foolishness. Uh, foolishness to the unsaved person, the natural man, because it requires faith. So the Bible is, speaks much of faith. It speaks of things like weak faith and strong faith, bold faith and abiding faith and steadfast faith and dead faith and precious faith and common faith and working faith and obedient faith. It speaks of things like little faith and great faith. That last one, great faith, Jesus says of this woman in in, in Matthew's account that, that she had great faith. Interestingly, the only other time in that particular book in Matthew that he speaks of great faith is in Matthew chapter eight, where a, a centurion, that is a, a, a Gentile, came to Jesus on behalf of his own servant. You may remember the story. Jesus uh, said to the guy, "Okay, fine. Take me to your house, and I'll heal him." And the centurion answers, no, "You don't have to come. You just say the word, and that'll—that's uh, all that that it'll take, and and he'll be healed." and Jesus was amazed and responded, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And again, back in Matthew's account, Jesus says of this woman, oh, woman, your faith is great. The Greek word there is the word mega. I like that. This woman had mega faith. I don't know about you, but I want mega faith. I want, just like he said to this woman, oh, woman, I want to hear Jesus say to me, oh, man, you have, you have great faith. Do you? See, we need to examine this passage to find out what mega faith is. So these are the questions that we need to answer today. First, why, why does Jesus appear, appear to be so mean? I mean, if He's always loving, if He's always teaching, what in the world is going on here? And, and, and second, why is this great faith? I could, I could say it this way, why does he ultimately respond to her? I want that kind of faith, don't you? I'm going to follow this outline. We're going to, three simple points. We're going to see the setting, which is very important in verse 24. And then we're going to see the initial exchange between Jesus and this woman in verses 25 to 27. Very troubling. And then we're going to see the characteristics of great f- faith, the last part of the passage. So let's start by setting up the story in, in verse Um, 24. And and one of the things that we will immediately see is the importance of context. I want you to understand this is why we do verse-by-verse studies through books. Context is incredibly important, especially in this particular story. You see, at the beginning of chapter 7... A delegation of scribes and Pharisees came from Jerusalem to discredit and hopefully destroy Jesus. We looked at that over the past couple of weeks. They accused Jesus, well, his disciples, but they were really after Jesus, of breaking the tradition of the elders. So Jesus immediately turns the tables on them and says, You violate the commandment of God with your tradition." And then he calls the crowds together to teach them. He does that in a, in a parable. And then later, he, he teaches privately his disciples. His message, though, was very important, and it forms the context for this story. What was the message? It's not what enters into the mouth that defiles a man. It's what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles him. This is, this is so important. The Pharisees... The tradition of the elders taught that by touching an unclean person, you could become unclean. You see, their whole approach to holiness was external. Holiness is found out out here. So if you touch something unclean out here, especially a Gentile, you become unclean. And Jesus said, that has nothing to do with defilement. True religion, true purity is all about the heart. You don't become defiled by eating unclean food, and you don't become defiled by touching unclean people. So with that as the context, at this point, Jesus and His disciples went away. They've actually been trying to do that for the past couple of chapters to get a break from the ever-present crowds, and every time they, they get somewhere, those crowds are there to meet them, and So this time, they decide to go to Gentile territory. In fact, in context, the next three stories are in predominantly Gentile areas. Why? Because by doing so, Jesus is living out what he just taught, rubbing shoulders with Gentiles That doesn't make you unclean. In fact, the gospel he came to bring is also for Gentiles. That should make you incredibly happy, since that's what you are. Just tuck this thought away. The the, the Pharisees were calling everyone else defiled, but by their attacks on Jesus, they were demonstrating that they were actually the defiled ones. What was in here was coming out. And this supposedly unclean Gentile woman showed by her words of faith that she was actually the clean one. Well, Jesus and his disciples went away to the region of Tyre. Is uh, usually mentioned alongside Sidon. In fact, some early manuscripts had Tyre and Sidon. Uh, we've perhaps heard of those cities before. They were the spiritual equivalent of Sodom and Gomorrah. Josephus, an early Jewish historian, says the, these cities are, quote, notoriously our bitter, uh, bitterest enemies. And th- 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 these people were considered altogether vile. Any self-respecting righteous Jew would never go to Tyre and Sidon. And so Jesus chooses this place for a retreat, like a little mini vacation. He can't get relief back in Galilee. The Pharisees are after him, very likely Herod Antipas is after him. So he leaves Jewish territory for a terribly unclean place on purpose. He's teaching us. Tyre and Sidon were Phoenician cities located on the Mediterranean coast in in uh, modern-day southern Lebanon. Tyre was actually only about 20 miles away from Capernaum. You can't make that trip either driving or by foot or even flying today because you have to go through Hezbollah territory. That won't work. Uh, Sidon's another 25 miles beyond that, uh, up the coast uh, to the north. Uh, Once they get there, Mark tells us that Jesus went into a house and wanted no one to know. It's like he took the phone off the hook. He didn't want to be bothered, certainly by these, in the context, these unclean Gentiles. But but notice the end of verse 24, but he could not escape notice, which brings us then to our second point, the exchange between this woman and, and Jesus. Now, while Jesus... Uh, was new to this uh, territory. Uh, we, he, we, we, we haven't read that he's traveled there before. He was not unknown there. In fact, Mark chapter 3 says specifically that people who were coming to be healed, some came from the region of Tyre. So here he is, finally on a retreat for some much-needed rest with his disciples, but he's known there. And a lady hears that he's come, so she goes to the house, falls uh, at his feet, and begins to cry out for help. This lady does. Now, you have to understand this woman had several strikes against her. First, sorry, she's a woman. And in that particular culture, women were not highly valued. Second, Matthew, Matthew's account, calls her a Canaanite. The Canaanite, that's an interesting word choice. In fact, it's the only... Uh, time, the word Canaanite is used in the entire New Testament. But, but you may remember from your Old Testament history that the Canaanites were the one that the Israelites were to destroy when they came into the land of promise. So this lady was historically an enemy of the Jews. Now Mark calls her a, a, Gentile, a, 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 a Gentile, literally a Greek, which means she's a Greek-speaking Gentile. She's a non-Jew. And she's of the Syrophoenician race. That means she's not from North Africa. It just means she's from that area. Here's Here's the point. If there was anyone unclean, it was she. Dirty, rotten, filthy woman. She shows up. And she begins destroying a perfectly good day of vacation. <laughs> and she wasn't being very polite about it. She was obnoxious. Not only was she bothering them, she was doing it loudly and incessantly. She began to cry out. In the, and it's in the imperfect of the Greek, which means she, she started crying out. And she kept on crying out. It was a constant, incessant appeal. In short, she was, she's annoying, asking Jesus over and over to, To heal her little daughter. Well, she had an unclean spirit. So you have an unclean territory, an unclean woman, and an unclean spirit. Everything about this story is unclean. (laughs) Or is it? We don't know exactly how this demon manifested itself, but we know from other Passages that demon possession could result in things like blindness and deafness and uh, foaming at the mouth, convulsions, throwing yourself into a fire, uh, screaming, cutting, nudity, all kinds of problems. This particular daughter, again, Matthew's account tells us, was cruelly, cruelly possessed. This demon was manifesting itself in some violent, terrible, cruel way. Of course, this. Mom was being incessant, wouldn't you? Well, then that brings me to the first thing that really kind of bothers me about this passage. She keeps asking because Jesus wouldn't answer. Again, Matthew says that she did not, he didn't answer her a word. He didn't even give her the time of day. You, know, you can just kind of see him sitting in the house there or drinking coffee, looking out the window while she's screaming for help. Jesus, what are, you, what are you doing? He usually responds to people in need. Isn't that what we expect? Hey, I've prayed. Now answer me right now. Here's this woman crying out for help, and Jesus completely ignores her. Apparently it goes on for some time because in Matthew, the disciples... <laughs> Finally get fed up. They said, will you send her away? She keeps shouting at us. Jesus, will you do something about this lady? Which brings me to the second very troubling response. (laughs) He actually says, let the children be satisfied first. What? To whom is he referring? Who are the children? Well, Jews. What a politically incorrect statement to make. Are you kidding? Jesus would never make it in 21st century America. You can't do that. What's this? Let the children be satisfied first. Talk about racism. You're not a Jew. I didn't come for you. Actually, not yet. You see, Paul would later say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. It is a fact that the gospel would be preached and found among Old Testament people of God first. They had, after all, been the recipients of the promises that through them had come both the Word of God and the Son of God. There is simply a functional and chronological priority here. They would receive the good news first. Even when Paul visited various Gentile cities, what's the first place that he would go to every time he arrived? To Jewish synagogues, to the Jew first. But he didn't stay there. You see, the gospel and all of its benefits would not stay with the Jews. In fact, throughout his ministry, Jesus came into contact with Gentiles and Samaritans, unclean people, all the time, and he would actually talk to them and touch them. He was worshipped at his birth by the Magi. Remember that? The Magi, the cute little Christmas story. Those are Gentiles from the East. When he he began his ministry, he he revealed himself to a sordid Woman at the well, who was a Samaritan, a filthy, foul half-breed. When he, when he, when he was uh, talking about fulfilling the law, he gave the parable of the good Samaritan and painted him in a positive light. He healed the centurion's servant. And, and when he ascends, he says to his disciples, now it's time. I need you to go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea. But he didn't stop there. And he says in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Yes, the gospel started with the Jews, but it did not stay there. Let the children eat first. This is a simple parable of chronological truth. And don't miss something else. And this is where, again, context is important. I I would suggest this passage is so difficult that people who just preach topically, say, I'm going to preach on this text and this text, I bet they don't pick this one. Because not only is it difficult, but if you take it out of its context, it's nonsensical. Don't miss this. Mark is weaving together a sub-theme here. Jesus fed the 5,000 outside Bethsaida Jews. He fed them with what? Bread. The Pharisees then accused his disciples of eating bread with unclean hands. After his teaching on true, uh, un- what true uncleanness was, Jesus moves into Gentile terri- territory, and the stories are, are all tied together with <laughs> bread. You see, now Jesus says, let the children eat bread first. And the woman says, yes, but even, but even dogs get crumbs, and, and Jesus says, that's right. And, and then he leaves from there, and he goes on the next couple of stories, we're going to find that he feeds 4,000 with bread, by the way, in the Decapolis. He feeds 4,000 largely Gentile people. Don't miss it. You You wouldn't see that if we didn't take these stories in their context. Sprinkled throughout his ministry, Jesus gives us glimpses of the glorious truth of the worldwide nature of his kingdom. The truth that Gentiles, that is you and that is me, will be called into his church. One commentator said it this way. The supreme significance of this passage is that it foreshadows the going out of the gospel to the whole world. It, is, it shows us the beginning of the end of all barriers. That, that The dividing wall that divided Jews and Gentiles. He's dismantling it. And by his silence, by his seeming harsh words, he was highlighting what he is about to do. Do you understand he is about to answer a Gentile's prayer? All of a sudden, this isn't a troubling text. It's a hope-filled, glorious text. So first, Jesus ignores her. Spread isn't for you. Not yet. Was he unaware of how she would respond? That she would best him in debate? Or was he drawing out her faith? Some have pointed out that she's the first to understand a parable. In fact, she then enters into a parable. Because next Jesus says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I believe it was affirming the priority of the message. It's true. Ephesians 2 says, she was at this time Um, uh, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. She was a stranger to the covenants of promise. She had no hope. She was without God in the world, but she doesn't stay that way. He wasn't saying anything that wasn't true, but by his words, he is drawing attention to the fact that she's without hope, and in so doing, he's drawing out and perfecting faith. I, I, I believe he was testing and strengthening her faith. You see, you have to understand something about what he says to this lady. In the Greek, there are two words for dogs. The first refers to mangy, vicious, wild dogs that roam the streets and live on garbage and, and dead carcasses and actually corpses. Uh, that, that's not the word that Jesus uses here. He uses the second one, which referred to, to, to house pets, much like in our pet's uh, in our houses today. They, they, they were not children, but they were part of the... You expect me to say family. They're not part of the family, but they're part of the household. They, they don't get fed from the table. Bread belongs to the children. But notice, they do get fed. These words would not have been nearly as offensive to this woman as we make them out to be. And if you are listening very carefully... You understand something about this time. Wait a minute. Is he saying I'm a Gentile dog? Hold on. Something else, we have no idea the tone with which he said these things. Many speculate it was with a very gentle, compassionate, inviting tone, which is why she responds the way that she does, where she says she enters into the parable the first to do so. It's true, Lord. And she furthers it by uh, by saying it's true, but even dogs under the table feed uh, on the children's crumbs. All I'm asking for is a crumb, Lord. Please give it to me. And Jesus has succeeded in drawing out our faith, perfecting it through this conversation. Here's my question for you this morning. Is it possible that he does that with us? Is it, is it possible that he might ignore us, not give us what we ask for right away or at all? To teach us, to test us, to strengthen and perfect faith. Is that possible? Remember, this woman had great faith, which brings us to our third point, the characteristics of great faith. You know, you can't help but be impressed with this lady when you read this particular story. I mean, Jesus was. Again, in Matthew, he says, oh, woman, your faith is great. It's, it's mega faith. It shall be done for you as you wish. Mark records Jesus is saying, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And she left and arriving at home, she found a little girl. She found her daughter lying on the bed, healed. The demon had left at Jesus' command. You think he had no intention of driving that demon out? Or, or do you think that he was doing something with this woman? So, so what's so impressive about this lady's faith that caused Jesus to call it great? In closing, I want you to notice four very quick things, four characteristics that I want to sink into our hearts Um, Today, first, her faith was in Jesus. Now, I know that that sounds rather simple, but it's incredibly important. As a Gentile of Tyre, a Syrophoenician, she was probably a worshiper of Astart and other pagan deities popular in that particular region. And I'm quite sure that those deities were fine when everything was going okay. But when she had a need... When she had a real need, she found those gods incapable of meeting her desperate cry for help. So she turned to the only one who could. And her cry is the cry of great and true faith. Jesus, my only hope is you. The gods of this life, all that this world has to offer, will not do. Only you will work. Great faith. Second, her faith was on the basis of mercy, Um, it might be that you're sitting here and going, I don't think I like this text. Because if, 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 this, is, if this is right, if, if what Scott is saying is right, then I'm a Gentile dog. And, and maybe, just maybe, you don't understand the mercy that we got. In Matthew, she said, Lord, have mercy on me. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Have mercy on me. Notice she doesn't come to Jesus and argue with him about whether or not it was fair that her daughter was demon-possessed. She didn't argue about whether or not her daughter deserved to be demon-possessed. She didn't argue uh, whether or not uh, her daughter, uh, 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 excuse me, whether she felt slighted as a Gentile dog. She didn't argue about whether Jews were better than Gentiles or whether Gentiles were at least as good as Jews. She, She didn't argue that she deserved as much attention from him as anyone else did. Her cry was very simple. It was, Lord, I know that I don't deserve it. Have mercy on me. Relieve me of the consequences of my sin. Show me mercy. I need it desperately. And you are my only source of help. That is the cry of great faith. And when you cry out recognizing who you are and what Christ can do for you, you go from being Gentile dogs to sons and daughters of the living God. Third, hers was a persistent faith. That's obvious. She kept asking. Now, uh, I want to say her faith, her great faith was persistent, not because she was disciplined, not because she bucked up. I, I don't need you to go from here saying, okay, that's what I need. I need to be more persistent in my faith. I need to try a little harder. Her faith was persistent, not because she was disciplined, but because she was desperate. She had a great need, and she would not be turned away. Her faith was real. She would not be discouraged. She would not be deterred by obstacles and setbacks or di- disappointments. She, some have even suggested that Jesus intentionally placed these barriers to see um, her work through them th- with th- that would strengthen her faith. He'd had enough of superficial, shallow faith from the crowds in Galilee. He was looking for deep, genuine, persistent faith. Faith, And he found great faith in this woman. It is a faith that would not give up. It was a persistent faith. You're my only hope. I will not turn away. Fourth, great faith is appropriately humble and passionately reverent. A passionate reverence that is expressed in, Oh, Lord. Have mercy on me. Lord, help me. While she was persistent, she did not come demanding. She came pleading, recognizing he was her only hope. She came with humble reverence. We want to have great faith. We've got to, it's got to be a faith resting solely on Jesus. No one else will do. All that this world has to offer will not do. It's got to be a faith resting solely on His mercy, not feeling like we deserve anything. We were, in fact, Gentile dogs. But He saved us. And we didn't deserve it. It's got to be a persistent faith, not a weak faith. And it's got to be a humble, reverent faith. Not like the flippant, self-absorbed faith we see in so many today. It is a faith that cries out incessantly to one person, one person only, for mercy. And that is the kind of faith that Jesus likes. Why do I say that? It is this kind of faith to which He responds. Let's pray.